Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am joined, as usual, by my two fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. How are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. I can't complain. Doing all right. How are you, Lee? I am hanging in there. It's the end of the semester for me, so like that's about the best report I can give. All right, so let's start off with our drink orders and our rants and raves. Charles Peterson, what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? Ooh, these Midwestern nights are getting colder and colder, so I'm going to go back to an old favorite. I'm going back to a little bit of Uncle Nearest 1856, but Four Fingers. Four fingers. Because I'm too lazy to get up and constantly walk back into my house to re-pour. So let's do the whole damn thing at one time. So we're going to go with four fingers of Uncle Nearest. That's a cigar smoking pour. It really, it's a settle in for the evening pour. And I think my man Rami can handle that. Yeah. Rami's got it. Yeah. (laughs) What are you ranting and raving about? Well, I am ranting about the same thing that has motivated my choice of drink. I'm ranting about the fact that now the nights in Northeast Ohio are getting too cold to sit outside and smoke a cigar. You know, cigar in 50-degree weather, cigar in 60-degree weather, maybe 40-degree, but cigar in 31, 30, 29-degree weather, (laughs) that shit's not fun. Your fingers are growing numb. (laughs) You can't hold the cigar anymore. You're not sure if it's smoke from the cigar or your exhalations. It's just... It's it's really just a miserable experience, and smoking cigar is the exact opposite of a miserable experience. So my rant is too damn cold to smoke a cigar comfortably at night. My rave this week is watching the film Adam's Family Values around this time of year leading up to Thanksgiving. And the scene where Wednesday completely co-ops the summer camp concluding performance and gives the real history of the Puritans and the First Nations is the most funny thing I can think of. It beats out anything Charlie Brown has to offer. So that's my rave for this week. All right, Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? So as we're sitting here, I continue to be in Poland. And I think I'm going to have, Rami assured me that he has it, I'm going to have a Slovak beer called Zlaty Baja, which is a very Ooh. nice pilsner, quite tasty. Two questions. So you're in Poland. Is the water very clear there in Poland? In the mountains, they're quite clear. You just completely missed the whole Poland Springs joke. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I got it. I, I got it. I did not. I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. So my rant this week is John McWhorter. <laughs> I first got to know John McWhorter as the host of a language podcast that was part of Slate. And I thought he was excellent. And we shared a lot of the same interests. He's constantly playing show tunes. He he knows Broadway musicals. He has interesting things to say about language. I don't know what happened to him lately, but I wish he would stop talking and writing about wokeness, about affirmative action, and all other things like this. So, John, I love you, but I can't stand you. <laughs> Just stop. 
that may be a whole nother episode. He's incredibly funny, and I used to love his podcast, and now I, he has a new one on language, and I just can't. I can't. He lost me. He just lost me. My rave this week is family. So I'm visiting extended family that I haven't seen for three years. And it's just so nice to be welcomed into their home and become part of their family for as long as I'm staying here. It's just really remarkable. And I just love family and particularly extended family. That's very sweet. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking? You know, I said last week that I was having an amaretto sour, and I'm not going to lie, I'm still on the amaretto sour train. (laughs) Pour me another amaretto sour and draw me another insulin shot, because (laughs) I am still on this train. It is so delicious. And point her toward her freshman year dorm room. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, kind of fair. Although I don't even want to tell you about what my actual freshman year dorm room drink was, which was Southern Comfort. Okay, we're moving on. All right. (laughs) Oh, Lord, can you buy me? (laughs) Yes. All right. So, as usual, I am not podcasting from Poland. And so, I will just say from America that my rave this week is about this reality television show, which is on Peacock. It's called Below Deck. I know that Rick likes this too. So Below Deck is a reality TV show that's basically concentrated on yachts. And it is more or less a American version of an upstairs, downstairs story. And what I love so much about this reality show is that it's almost unparalleled in its examination of American class divisions. I would love to see more upstairs, downstairs kind of analysis in American culture But I'm not sure that there is a lot of places that this can be done so easily and so well as on yachts. (laughs) So I really want to uh, recommend uh, Below Deck to everyone for a honestly pretty sophisticated class analysis of America. My rant this week, and again, we're recording this in the week leading up to Thanksgiving, My rant this week is holiday family stress. I don't know if this is a Southern thing, but I would really like to meet other Americans that do not stress the fuck out at holidays. Like It is so embedded in my emotional core to stress out at holidays. And I wonder if this is like just my family, but I know it's not just my family because- No, it's just your family. (laughs) My partner does it. Everyone else does it. Like, why do we do this to one another? This is our vacation. This is our break. This should be a moment to relax. Why do we put all of this stress on one another 
on holidays. That puts like, the fun in dysfunctionally. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not functional. Can we please stop it? But yeah, I just would like to have one holiday season where I do not have to stress. But honestly, it wouldn't even be a holiday season. I think if I had a holiday season where I wasn't stressing, I would be like stressing about the fact that I did not know what I was supposed to be stressing about <laughs> like in that holiday season. It's just two quotes that come to me. The first is from Richard Pryor, who said, family, it's the prison sentence that you didn't commit a crime for. So true. And I'm not sure if it was Ibsen or if it was Chekhov that says every happy family is happy in the same way, but every unhappy family has its own types of happiness. I thought that was Faulkner, which would be so appropriate because that's a Southern family, right? Every unhappy family is unhappy in its not own Not just way, Southern right? families, Lee. I think this is fairly universal. Go easy on everyone in this season because the only way to stop this violence is to wake up every morning and not choose violence. <laughs> 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 All right. With that said, I believe that, Charles, you were in the hot seat this week. So what are we talking about today? We are talking about something that in a different state of mind could come dangerously close to a nice hour rant on my part, but it's not. We are recording this in the days subsequent to the Kyle Rittenhouse decision. And there have been a lot of comments within the news media, a lot of pundits, a lot of legal analysts, a lot of theorists who've weighed in on what this means for the future of American justice, what this means for gun rights, what this means for a rising white nationalist, white power political movement. But I want to think about this in the context of the seeming conflict between the possible legal rightness of the decision and the framework within which the jury had to make decisions and the ways the laws which were explained to the jurists may have found him not guilty of these acts yeah. of violence. And I also want to think about the ways in which our intuitive moral impulses, and not all of us because of the sickening reality of this decision, is that you have a lot of commentators who are celebrating this mm. and seeing it as right and as just and the way that the United States as a society should engage in dealing with this political questions going forward. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who don't feel that way, I was going to say something akin to, for those of us that actually have a soul, there, there is a certain level of moral repugnance that goes along with this beyond all the details of, of the young man and the facts of the case. So I want to dig into that, the ways in which our understanding the law over and against sometimes the ways in which moral culpability or moral expectation come into conflict with that. So what you're saying is we're talking about the difference between legally right and morally wrong. Exactly. <laughs> had a few conversations with friends of mine who study the law, who practice the law. It has really forestalled my initial instincts. I'm still angry as hell. I'm still scared as hell. I still feel really badly for the families of the young men that were killed by, by Kyle Rittenhouse. And sadly, and this is a sidebar, 
their experiences and their families were never presented before the media. Yeah. The whole positioning was about his mother, her concerns, her fears. I'm thinking, well, aren't there the families of two dead men? But okay, that's another point. But these conversations have led me to rethink what may have been my knee-jerk response, which is, oh, this is some insane miscarriage of justice, and you've got this horribly biased jury, especially when we have to think about this in terms of the very specific laws around gun ownership, and that's certainly an old conversation that we've had in the past, and how we have to think very specifically around issues of self-defense, as they play out, and we have to think about issues around legal excuses versus legal justification. As I understand it, a legal justification is an event that occurs within a certain context that is a naturally expected occurrence. People behave in a way that you ex- expect them to versus a legal excuse where people behave in a way that is not natural to them because of some type of pressure or some type of manipulation. Right? I rob a bank because you're holding my child hostage. That's a legal excuse. So all of these things are going through my mind, and I'm trying to to work through them because I'm I'm very concerned about where we're heading as a society, where our politics are going. I'm I'm trying to use this moment to think about how do we, as people who see ourselves as activists or see ourselves as fighting against this oncoming right-wing tide, how do we navigate this split between the law and between what's right? And I think that, that this case is a perfect breaking stone for that. I 100% agree with you that I think this case is a perfect focus point for that. I think that one of the things that we've seen too often, honestly, in the last five, 10 years is exactly what we saw in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, which is, and I'm not randomly picking, but I'm picking another case about which there was a lot of divided opinions as comparison, namely the O.J. Simpson case. So the thing about the O.J. Simpson case that is significantly different than this case, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, is that at least in the O.J. Simpson case, we, the public, didn't see all the evidence. Even though we were able to watch the trial from beginning to end, We didn't see all the evidence in the same way that we saw three people literally shot on video in front of our faces. We saw the whole context for it. We understood the whole context for it and therefore could make, I think, as a public, informed judgments about it as if we were on the jury. And I think that this is something that, unfortunately, between the O.J. Simpson verdict and Today, we've just seen too many times. So even going back to around the same time of the O.J. Simpson verdict, of course, we all saw Rodney King. But since then, in what I would consider sort of incontrovertible cases, we saw George Floyd and we saw Philando Castile. So this idea that there's something magical that goes on in a courtroom that somehow nullifies our normal moral judgments is something that we really have to think seriously about. And, you know, every semester I teach the basic intro to ethics course at my university. It's called Contemporary Moral Issues. And I have, over the 15 years that I've been teaching this, I have made a point in the first week to say, in this course, 
We are not primarily interested in legal responsibility. We are primarily interested in moral responsibility because I am so aware, as are all of my students, that quite often those two things are radically opposed, legal responsibility and moral responsibility. And of course, I want to have my students focus on moral responsibility. But this idea that we live in a country where they can be so radically opposed is deeply, deeply, deeply problematic. Well, here's the thing, and and I'm pulling a lot of this from conversations or email text messages with a good friend of mine who's once again a lawyer and a law professor. And he has this great phrase where he says, the law tries to mitigate the distance between our moral expectations and the actual codification of behavior within the state. So most people would assume based on their moral inclinations that the law says don't do this, this thing happens, someone violates it, bam, case closed, this person is guilty, going to jail. But he gives a great example, and this is a callback, an interesting thought experiment. You have a 14-year-old, he's an honor student in a state that says, and this is because corporations have lost millions of dollars due to shoplifting, and there's a law that says anyone shoplifting gets a mandatory minimum of 40 years in jail. Well, you've got this 14-year-old honor student in this state. 14-year-olds are considered adults. They steal a pack of hubba bubba chewing gum, $1.25. But because of the laws of the state, they get the mandatory minimum of 40 years. Now, clearly, our moral sensibility would be like, hey, wait a minute, that's crazy. That's too far. We have to begin to think about these other... Yeah, that's less than what a rapist gets. But, I mean, the interesting point that I think both you and Lee are are making before we get to even some of the larger issues in, involved in this is that I'm tired of people telling me that the justice system or the law or the courts are not the place for politics. And that's ridiculous on two sides of the question. First, the laws are made through a political process. And Hell surprise, mm-hmm. the laws then <laughs> solidify the politics of the majority. And then the second end is we have a system where people are tried by a jury of their, I'm putting this in quotes for our listeners, peers. And you can't tell me that politics is not entering into the courtroom through the jury box and into the jury room. And yet every single time, We seem to be surprised or we say, no, 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 this was the courtroom. Politics were not involved. It was just a legal decision that was made. Yeah. And if I could just point out what I think is obvious about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is that there was nothing about the way that we ideally think about how the courtroom works that was actually operative in the Rittenhouse trial. There was not an impartial judge. There was not a jury of quote-unquote peers. I mean, it was a very selective jury. It was a overly biased and involved judge. And nothing about it was ideally, we think, about how the justice system works. I mean, I'm not sure that I can think of another case that is so obviously demonstrative of what, and this is going back to our first episode of the season, of what critical race theory is trying to show us about how justice works in the United States. I cannot think of anything more demonstrative as a case study for that than this Kyle Rittenhouse. Here's the the thing, and, and let me push back. 
But let's think about this in terms of the experience of the jury and very specifically the instructions given to them by Mm -hmm. the judge, which is very clear about A, how self-defense is defined in the state of Wisconsin. For example, in some states, I think there's what they call a duty to safety. Retreat. A duty to retreat, right? Wisconsin does not have a duty to retreat. Or the duty to retreat is implied within the the particular moment. Or that's A. B, there's also the question of, in the state of Wisconsin, the person that provokes the encounter is not allowed access to a self-defense claim. So if, Mm. as Kyle Rittenhouse says in his testimony, these two gentlemen aggressed him, tried to take his gun, one was hitting him with a skateboard, he actually now is in the legal right to defend himself. There's also the question of his state of mind and his judgment about his personal safety, whether or not, and this is where it's deeply problematic, it's a subjective call. Do I feel like my life is in peril? Do I feel like him hitting me with his skateboard imperils my life and justifies my use of this weapon? So we have to think about, in a sense, the limits that are placed upon the jury in this case. Now, I'm not saying the jury doesn't have his biases. I'm not sure. But also the judge that's placing those limits on the jury has his biases. Well, remember, these all are points of legality within Wisconsin law in terms of how do we look at the duty to retreat? How do we look at the, the definition of self-defense? Those are all matters of law in Wisconsin. But also at the beginning of the trial, the judge instructed that the people shot by Kyle Rittenhouse could not be referred to as victims was already, to me, a blanket distortion of the entire series of events that we cannot ignore in terms of any subsequent instruction that he gives to the jury. Both of you are right in speaking to slightly different issues. So I think, Charles, as I heard you, you were speaking to the position of the jurors and that we shouldn't go after the decision they made as jurors, given the way the statutes are written in Wisconsin and the definition of all these terms, they probably came to the legally appropriate conclusion. Whereas Lee, you're pointing to how did those jurors get in the jury box? What did the judge do leading up to that? And by the way, he was already messing with the trial during jury selection. When someone said, I support the Second Amendment to the death, and there is no way I would ever convict someone of a gun crime, yep. the judge said, the Second Amendment is not at issue here. You're fine. Yeah. So it seems like those are two different sides of the question. And and. I I think they're both political, but in different ways. And there is a way in which I think, you know, to shout out to friend of the podcast, Jason Reed, I thought (laughs) one of his tweets was really appropriate. Namely, I, I think I'm probably misquoting it, but it went something like this. So we have a legally appropriate verdict that reinscribes a racial hierarchy. If only we had a theory to analyze (laughs) this. Yeah, yeah. He said, if only we had a theory to critique this race-based judgment. Yeah. Shout out to Jason Reed. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, If you can't catch us at the hotel bar, 
You can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation. I'd like to bring us back and maybe take us away a little bit from our focus on the Kyle Rittenhouse decision and more broadly to address this difference between legal and moral responsibility. Because one of the things that I worry about, as I said in our earlier segment, is that there's a tendency among my students, for example, but I probably think Americans in general to conflate legal and moral responsibility. I mean, I'm going to show my cards here. Obviously, I think that tendency is more pronounced on the right than it is on the left. I think that what we see from leftist activists is the long tradition of leftist activists in the United States to say that the law is not always just, the law is not always moral, but there seems to be a re-entrenchment on the right that the legal is also the moral. And what really kind of confounds me at this moment in American history is January 6th. Over the last, let's say, five years since the transition to Trump, we've had this entrenchment on the right partially as a consequence of the political rights manipulation of the justice branch, like stacking the courts and stacking SCOTUS in particular with right-leaning judges, this entrenchment in being able to act in whatever way that they want and relying on the courts ultimately absolving them of any moral wrongs in a technocratic legal sense. Well, well, the laws are becoming extensions of their moral will. Yeah, yeah. But now we're in this moment where these insurrectionists from January 6th are being brought to account before the law and are being judged guilty. And there is this reaction from the right at the injustice of the courts in finding them guilty. I think that's a really important point. And I see a subtle, maybe not so subtle shift in, let's say, the old version of conservatism, which was bound up with the Chamber of Commerce and so on, in which I think that attitude was screw your moral responsibility as long as it's legal it's okay balls and strikes yeah and then i think lately this precedes trump a little bit but we see it then more in his era where then there's an 
open violation of the law and then a manipulation of the judicial selection process in order to prevent any consequences of that open violation of the law. I think right now, the Fox News, Trump right wing in the United States doesn't give two shits about what's legal. No. Oh, I mean, a very interesting version of this type of claim was throughout the the Trump presidency. Could you imagine what would happen if Obama had done this? Right. So I'll bring this back to the Rittenhouse case. Could you imagine if a 17-year-old black boy had walked around Proud Boys and felt themselves under assault, their lives endangered, and murdered two Proud Boys and injured a third? There wouldn't have been a trial. There wouldn't have been a trial. He, the, the boy wouldn't have made it to trial. Yeah. Well, and a perfect example mm-hmm. of this is Philando Castile, a, a legal concealed carry gun owner. And the NRA yeah. doesn't say a word in his defense. But what I'm trying to get to is the larger point in terms of thinking about really questions of resistance, thinking about how does one engage a state, a set of conditions in which there's a perfect and total merging between what we would consider a problematic moral perspective and the structures of legality. The Mm -hmm. court system, the laws, those that influence the laws, those that enact and pass the laws, all these things. So the question becomes, how do we begin to think about this knowing that there is still a very different moral sensibility? That someone who is critical of these laws is not going to be given the leeway to protest the laws in the same way that someone who's in alignment with these moral and legal statutes will be given leeway to protest. I'd like to bring up an example of how hard it is to protest an unjust law. So I'm going to use Roe v. Wade. You know, the thing about the American court system is that you have to have the kind of ideal case to contest an unjust law. And for years, it was the case that women were not allowed the legal right to abortion because no one could find the ideal case to demonstrate that abortion was the legal right of a woman's choice about her own body. And Roe v. Wade, it's only 48 years old, but it's already been stripped back so far that it's practically non-existent in many states, my state being one of them and all of the surrounding states of Tennessee being the others. But this idea that what's morally right, which, I mean, let me just go ahead and say this, just, you know, from my own perspective. Make it plain. Make it plain. I personally am unresolved about whether or not a fetus is a child. And I think that if I were to find myself pregnant, which as a gay woman would be extremely weird, you know, not extremely weird, right? Like <laughs> then we but, would start like, saying the hell we right, exactly. No, no, <laughs> but 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 not extremely weird because of rape. It's mm. so common. Right. But if I were to find myself pregnant, even by a violent act, I'm not sure that I myself, as a moral agent, could choose an abortion, uh, and for moral reasons. That is something that I absolutely would not make a decision about for any other woman. And I do not think that I have a right to make a decision about for any other woman. So I am 100% pro-choice, not because I necessarily think that killing a fetus is not 
killing a person, but because I do think that that is not a decision about which I'm 100% convinced, and it's somebody else's decision to make about their own situation. No, I was going to say that kind of, though, gets us into the sticky heart of the situation because that's precisely why there is a separation between legality and morality. That you yeah. find something yeah. that wouldn't be your moral choice, but you would insist it not be the law. Absolutely right. I mean, there are other moral convictions that I have that I would insist should be the law. That is not one of them. Like banning Uggs. I think that I... (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I have a lot of aesthetic (laughs) convictions that I think should be the law. No, but I think that slavery, for example, I think is a moral conviction that I have that I could, in Kantian terms, I could universalize. I'm not sure that I could universalize the maxim of my action to not have an abortion because I think the maxim is based on a belief about a fetus that I don't think is universalizable, and I'm not sure that I could even morally want to universalize. So now you've gotten me all the way down this rabbit hole, but that's not where I was going. (laughs) My, My point was to say that abortion is one of those cases that I think, when we talk about the difference between legal responsibility and moral responsibility, is a good example of how it takes a really specific idealized, in some ways, case to even bring the moral case up to the consideration of the legal case. I think that this is one of the things that I worry about is that we've lost that really high bar of saying that it has to be a really exceptional case of moral offense to bring it up to the level of being considered legally. And I think that what we saw in the Kyle Rittenhouse case is that there are all these kind of fuzzy moral offenses, like, for example, self-defense, that are not exceptional at all, that are being brought up to the level of idealized instances that deserve being instantiated in law that are not deserving of that. By the way, just to take a tangent, I also think this is the case with a lot of the the things that we're saying about what's offensive in general. <laughs> like, I think this is what's happening with critical race theory. It's just like, oh, this hurts my feelings, therefore it should be illegal. Wearing a mask, this inconveniences me, therefore it should be illegal. We've just lost the sense of the relationship between moral right and legal right. Well, I, I want to make two points, and I, I think you're very much so correct in terms of the ways in which self-defense in these statutes is defined is completely a subjective experience. It's ridiculous. Absolutely a subjective, oh, this person gave me the side eye and I thought that that was going to endanger me. So if so fact, I can go ahead and shoot this person. So you're right. This, that's deeply problematic. So now we're universalizing really limited experiences versus thinking about how close to a universal experience can we get in order to craft a proper loss. The failure to actually do that, especially when we, when we talk about things going before courts, or certainly the Supreme Court, is really best exemplified in this new Texas law that banned abortions after six weeks. 
This was clearly a fuzzy, this makes no sense. This does not bring us to a morally compelling situation that needs to re-examine the It was just like, Supreme Court's like, eh, okay. You got something that sort of limits, but doesn't completely end abortions in Texas. That's fine. We'll let it stand. Well, and then to go back to the Rittenhouse case for a moment, it does seem, and, and here I want to go in the other direction, it seems morally reprehensible that a guy claims self-defense when he lives some hundred miles away, loads his weapons into the car and drives to this site precisely in order to get himself involved in this protest and then shoot someone and claim self-defense. So that seems morally reprehensible and that our laws can't find someone guilty of an offense there is a moral affront. Certainly a moral affront, but legally he has the right to be there. A, he has the right to cross the lines in the same way that Black Lives Matters protesters have the right to enter Kenosha from across the state. A, B, because of the laws of the state, he has the right to wield this weapon openly and without any type of certification within the state. Except he never had the right, right. to have that weapon right. and, in the and, first and place. That count, right? like, and and yeah. that was thrown out. And that was thrown out by the, by judge. the judge. Right, like, yeah. You know, we can see this in the concurrently occurring, as we record this, Ahmaud Arbery trial. Right. Mm. Right? We can see the difference between the prosecutor's approach in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and the prosecutor's approach in the Ahmaud Arbery trial and the superiority of the prosecutor's approach in the Arbery trial, which is that they are very clearly intending to challenge this vacant idea of self-defense. So what we've seen in the Aubrey trial so far is that the prosecutor has said very clearly over and over and over, were you actually threatened? Was anybody pursuing you? Did you feel threatened at any point? And that was also said in the Cal Rittenhouse trial, but in the context of all of these other instructions and directions from the judge in advance that precluded the possibility of the jury really considering whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse was actually in danger, despite his white tears. And I think that one of the great things about the prosecution in the Ahmaud Aubrey trial is that they've said, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you thought Ahmaud Aubrey thought were you pursuing him? You may know this already, but one of the guys in the truck said, yeah, we pulled up on him. And the prosecutor said, was he shocked? Was he afraid? Was he worried? And he was like, no, no, he was fine. He's like, can you read his mind? Would you be afraid if somebody just pulled up on you in a truck with guns? And I think that, I mean, I don't know that the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict is entirely on the shoulders of the judge. I think the prosecutor was terrible right, in that right. case. That, that has been noted. But I think that we can see a similar thing happening concurrently in the Ahmaud Aubrey trial, where there's the same legal concept at issue, which is, is self-defense just a matter of someone's feelings? And I think what we're seeing in the Ahmaud Aubrey defense is a real pushback against that.
couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. some really important points about the ways in which policies around self-defense are being pursued and challenged so far fairly successfully as far as we can tell in the Ahmaud Arbery case. But I, I want to go back to an earlier point that is the beginning of my endgame, as it were, and that's the question that we posed earlier. What does it look like when we have a particular population whose moral sentiments are completely aligned or becoming completely aligned with that of the state? And bear mm-hmm. with me. I think I'm going to go ahead and create a, a new philosophical term, a new construct. I will call it the absolutist discursive state, where there is no <laughs> space between questions of legality, order, so universal right and intention, and questions of particular moral subjective judgments. There's no compromise between the two. There's no navigation. Like, Lee, you talked about earlier your thoughts around a woman's right to make health choices for herself versus particular moral concerns you may have. That's a healthy way to be, and that may be a healthy way to to have a law existing versus the other way, where everything is smooth and clean and seamless, but on one side of the moral and legal structure. So my concern is within that particular state, within that particular circumstances, how can we think about civil disobedience? How can we think about challenging those laws when there is no foothold for the critic or the activist or the protester to get a hold of that if we know that self-defense is not going to be a successful claim for an activist and so forth and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that I worry about is that if, for example, I were to say look, there are certain moral principles that I am not going to budge on no matter what the law is. And there's a long American history of doing this. So if I were to say enslavement is wrong, treating other people as a means to an end is wrong, exploitation is wrong, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter what the context is, those are absolutely wrong. If I were to say that, which I would, by the way, Noted. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Please, everyone, write that down in your journals. Like, yeah. But if I were to say that, one of the things that I'm very worried about is that in the same way that I might say people are entitled to freedom of thought or freedom of speech, that that gets taken up by a cause that understands the principle upon which I'm standing in a way that is entirely contrary to the principle upon which I'm standing. And and I think freedom of speech is the most obvious, or even self-defense is the most obvious way to see how this is happening in the United States today. I would want to say, of course, everyone has a legal 
and a moral right to defend their own lives. Everyone has a legal and a moral right to speak their minds. Everyone has a legal and a moral right to make decisions about their own bodies. And yet all I've seen in the last five years is everyone who believes things that are entirely contrary to what I believe say what they believe on the basis of those principles, those same principles that I just articulated. So one of the problems here, Lee, is just to take one of your examples and to stick with self-defense for a moment. Let's engage another callback to the same episode. Let's engage in a thought experiment. So, Lee, you're walking down the streets of Memphis and I come up behind you. I'm unarmed, but I say, give me all your money. You turn around. Well, I shouldn't say you're unarmed. Hey, Rick. And I'm like, damn, you weren't supposed to turn around. What do you need, my brother? So let's say, okay, here, I am armed. I come up behind you with no intention to use my weapon whatsoever. And I say, give me all your money. And you turn around and brandish a weapon at me. And I pull out my gun and shoot you. And then when it goes to trial, I claim self-defense. That is morally abhorrent. And I think we can't let the absolutist discursive state, trademark Charles Peterson, get away with that. I think that your words don't mean anything you want because then they mean nothing. And so either something like self-defense means something or it means nothing. What worries me about Charles' correct analysis of the current situation is that as long as there is no gap, it's hard to intervene discursively, but I'm worried that it also becomes quite dangerous or has become quite dangerous to start intervening. I agree with you. I think that's a really complicated thought experiment that you posed. So I think that if you had come up behind me and said, give me all your money or I'm going to shoot you, and I had turned around and drawn my weapon, which you know, for the listening public, I never have a weapon. Lee's always packing. You can rob me anytime. She she keeps a twenty two at her ankle. And don't forget the shoulder holster. And the switchblade. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I do have a switchblade. And the brass knuckles. <laughs> if, oh, my God, you guys. Let me finish my point. And mace. She carries mace. Other than that, she's never armed. Never armed. <laughs> hey, listeners, are you still with me? So here's the thing. If Rick comes up behind me and says, give me your wallet or I'm going to shoot you. And I turn around and brandish my weapon and he shoots me. I think that is a legally complicated scenario. And that's fucked up that it's legally complicated. But I also think that's a morally complicated scenario. Like, I think that is also a morally complicated scenario. I think that is a situation where I have a genuine fear of my own life. I have something that might disseminate that threat. It might also accelerate that threat. I don't know. But at that point, I think not at least trying to disseminate that threat is my only option, right? Like if you say, give me your wallet, I mean, I suppose I could just give you my wallet, which just FYI for listeners, I would do. But you know what I'm saying? Our 
focus ought to be on training people, encouraging people to prioritize the morally complicated over the legally complicated, to prioritize what is morally right over what is legally right. And I think that that is something that as a society we do not do, as universities we do not do, as employers we do not do. And that is actually our problem, is that everyone is trained to default to their moral sensibility being, what will I go to jail for? What might I go to jail for? Hey, Hotel Bar Sessions listeners. Just a friendly reminder that in addition to whatever podcast platform you use, you also have the option of listening to our weekly podcast episodes on YouTube. Just type Hotel Bar Sessions into your YouTube search bar and you will find us. And make sure to check back at least once every three episodes when we post bonus video content on our YouTube channel as a part of a series that we call Afterthoughts where Charles, Rick, and I look back on the previous three podcast episodes and consider what we woulda, coulda, and or shoulda said. We may not be that pretty, but we're hella entertaining. So please be sure to like and follow Hotel Bar Sessions' YouTube channel. And now, back to our conversation. Charles. So we're running up against the end of our time, but there is one question that I want to ask you before we end, which is if you were a member on the Kyle Rittenhouse jury and you were given the instructions that Judge Schroeder gave to that jury, do you think that you could have found a way to hang the jury? One of my favorite movies is 12 Angry Men. But but I'm I'm asking you, give me the (laughs) argument that you give the other 11 juries. Be the one angry man. The argument I would make, as I understand the case, part of it hung on the idea that he was actually in fear for his life and he did not have a duty to retreat. The argument I would make is, and this is what I was thinking too, I was thinking what I really want is a prosecutor who speaks in the voice and the sensibility of the black women that raised me when I was growing up, which would have been like, you know, good and damn well that you holding the AR-15 and he's got a skateboard that he's not going to do too much harm to you. I mean, that would be my argument. I mean, let's be reasonable about whether or not there is real danger to his person. Whether or not there's deadly danger to his person, right? I mean, if somebody smacks you in well, the no, head but that's, with that's a the problem. skateboard, there's danger to that's, your person. But, but, but that's a subjective thing about it. He had to feel like, because his logic was, I was afraid that they were going to take my gun from me and then use it on me. That's the full articulation of his self-defense and his concern for his safety. And I would argue, yeah, we understand he has the right to be there because he can cross state lines, engage in a peaceful process. Yes, because of the laws of the state, no one's questioning whether that he should have had the gun or not, letting the mother off the hook, right? He is still a minor. But we have to think very seriously that a man with a skateboard is getting a few licks in on a man with a gun. Yeah, yeah. Right? 
who already has the upper hand in this confrontation. I'm not saying that he was not provoked. I'm not saying he should have been assaulted with the skateboard. But let's be very honest about what exactly are the power di- And that's where I would lose the jury. As soon as I use the term power dynamics, they're done. I lost them. They shut it down. Yeah. Yeah, because that's showing your pH exactly. dumb right there. Exactly. That show, I'm woke. That shows my wokeism. Yeah, yeah. And I, w- I would hang the jury, which would give yeah. the prosecutor another opportunity at it if they chose to do, right? But I, I would hang that jury. Which is why, listeners, you should be philosophy majors. Can I make my new hashtag hang juries? That uh, works in a couple of ways. One of which... It, it only so works in one way in the current United States, though. I don't know about that. That's right up there with, you know, some have yeah. argued defund the police. Is that really what you want to say? It is 100% <laughs> what I want to say. And also, by and the I'll, way, hashtag hang juries is what I want to say, too. In the current and I would, United States, I want States, to admit, yeah. too, I've probably ruined the opportunity for me ever to serve in a jury. With that statement, someone's going to invite me to be in a jury. Someone's going to do like a, a web wash of me and, and find this thing. But nope, he believes in hanging juries. He can't serve on the jury. If I knew it was that easy, Charles, I would See, have said I'm, the See, I'm the exact thing. opposite. I am 48 years old and I have never once been called for jury duty. Not once. In 48 years of my life, I've voted every election. I'm definitely on the jury roll. I've always had a, a driver's license. I don't know how I've never been called for jury duty. So my situation is I am called, it seems like, as soon as I am eligible. Because you're a white man. That's how. This is not confusing. I have never once served on a jury. I've, I've never even so much been called into a courtroom. I've never been voir I sit in the jury room all day. And after eight hours, they give me a check for 1247 and say, thank you for your Charles, service. Charles, have you ever been called for jury duty? I was called up for grand jury duty. But how many mm. times in your life have oh, you Oh, just been once. Called? And I've been voting since I was 18 years old. How old are you? I'm 51 years old. Okay. Charles is 51. He's been called once. I'm 48. I've been called zero. Rick, how many times have you been called? Well, so I've been called to duty. I don't know. Eight okay, times. so it's not but, about it's not but no, Lee, no 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 Lee, no it's not about Lee, whether you, Lee yes 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 Lee I've never been in a that's not the show. point that's not the point you've been Ooh, called as as a part of the pool you've been at least considered as a <laughs> and where on my voting record is my race on your voting record <laughs> not in Illinois no your uh, name's Rick Lee. <laughs> okay, and so is half of China and three quarters of Korea. Okay, Rick oh, is a popular like, name in China and Korea. Rick Lee. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it is. After this podcast, it's becoming more and more okay. popular. Okay. I do think it's worth noting that Rick has been called eight times for jury duty. I've yeah. been called zero, and you've been called once. And then the judge bumped me. He wouldn't let me, because I was a college professor. He wouldn't let yeah, me. Yeah, that's probably the reason that Rick's never actually right. served on a jury, is for the same reasons. Wait, wait, can I be clear? In all of my cases, so they call to downtown Chicago, I'm not kidding, like a thousand jurors to serve on whatever case might come up that day. I get sent to that room. And I have never once left that Yeah, but room. like that, the lawyers choose from that room. No, no, they don't. Not in Illinois, they don't. With the grand jury thing, I 
because it's hilarious. So they take you there and you sit in a room and you watch this video. I swear to God, John Houseman in his character from Paper Chase. Study of law is something new and unfamiliar to most of you. Unlike any schooling you've ever been through before. We use the Socratic method here. I call on you, ask you a question, and you answer it. Why don't I just give you a lecture? Because through my questions, you learn to teach yourselves. Through this method of questioning, answering, questioning, answering, we seek to develop in you the ability to analyze that vast complex of facts that constitute the relationships of members within a given society. Questioning and answering. At times, you may feel that you have found the correct answer. I assure you that this is a total delusion on your part. You will never find the correct, absolute, and final answer. In my classroom, there is always another question, another question to follow your answer. Yes, you're on a treadmill. My little questions spin the tumblers of your mind. You're on an operating table. My little questions are the fingers probing your brain. We do brain surgery here. You teach yourselves the law, but I train your mind. You come in here with a skull full of mush, and you leave thinking like a lawyer. <laughs> swear to God, they haven't changed this fucking video in 40 years. Really, 50, right? Because the fucking movie's in the 70s. And he, he lays out what, what a grand jury does. And then they call you into the court, and the judge is there. And the judge, not the defense or not the prosecutors, but the judge is the person that reviews you and then decides whether or not you serve or you don't. And the judge literally said, oh, so Dr. Peterson, I see your professor. Where do you teach? Oh, I teach at the College of Worcester. Hmm. Would serving in a grand jury once a month, would that disrupt your teaching schedule? I was like, no, it's pretty flexible. I can alter, change, make reassignments, whatever. He said, like, are you sure? I said, no, I'm fine. And I said, I actually would be happy to serve on the grand jury. He said, no, I think it'll interfere with your schedule, so you're excused. I know zero professors that have been on juries. But I know a judge who's in that same court, and this was the federal district court out of Cleveland. He was an older black man who's a judge, and he said, I'd have chosen you for that jury if it were me. And that's all he mm. said, and I got what he meant. Mm. Right. right? Race yeah. and professor. Yeah. And nobody wants problems, right? They want to be able to indict a, a ham sandwich with a grand jury. Hey, can I just ask a shout out to listeners? If you are an academic and or philosophy professor, either comment on our Facebook page or our Twitter page or send us a email to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com and let us know if you've ever actually served on a jury. I'm really interested to hear. Michael Noss. Yeah, I'm, well, okay. Michael Noss, because I know you're listening. <laughs> like, I would love to hear. He, he served on a jury. I know, I'm sure he has, but I would love to hear who's actually served on a jury. And maybe, if you don't mind sharing some details about it, we'd love to hear it. All right, you guys, this has been a great conversation. We are going to have to say goodbye to... What's your bartender's name? Stash. 
Rami is caught between his obligation to serve his drinks because of his job and his moral desire to tell us to get the fuck out. <laughs> Rami. His morally correct desire. <laughs> Rami, trust your moral intuitions. All right, you guys. It's so great having this conversation. I will talk to you next time. All right. Take care. All right. Later. Later. <laughs> 